Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy Collins, the host of Theana Money. This is the first official full episode of Theana Money. Since last week's episode zero was just an introduction to the podcast. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't go check it out still if you missed that episode. This week is going to be the first of a two-part series I am doing to start the podcast off well and give it a good foundation. So what is the foundation I am building for this podcast with this two-part series? It is something that is vital to virtually all aspects of economics as we study it from the perspective of scripture. Personal Property Personal property is vital to our understanding of economics, and the Bible has much to say about it. So therefore, we are looking this week at the biblical foundations for personal property, and next week at the foundations for it rooted in economic principles. Now, I don't want to spend too much time in any one passage this week, but I want to look at this in a more systematic way more of an overview than an exegesis of a single passage. Some, if not all, of the passages discussed today will get their own episode, or at least a much deeper analysis in future episodes, so you will want to stay tuned for what is coming in the future. So without further ado, let's jump into what the Bible has to say about personal property. First, let's look at the Ten Commandments. I want to start here because even many who disagree with me, even vehemently disagree with me about theonomy, still agree that the Ten Commandments are applicable for believers today, or at least nine of the ten are, with the Sabbath no longer applying. But for the most part, people still think that the Ten Commandments are mostly, if not entirely, applicable today where most of the rest of the Old Testament law may or may not be. So if I can show that the Bible teaches private property from here, then it is something with which most believers should be able to agree. So let's go to that passage that is likely familiar to many of us, the first 17 verses of Exodus 20. Specifically here, we are going to look at verse 15. In the New American Standard Bible, Correct edition, I'm sorry, I mean the 1995 edition, it reads, You shall not steal. Now this seems simple, there are only four words there, but those four words have so much importance in unpacking their meaning, implications, and especially their cross-references with other passages of scripture, so much so that entire books can and have been written on them. The Westminster Divines, the authors of the Westminster Confession and Shorter and Larger Catechism, they have several questions and answers on this commandment in their larger catechism. So let's take a few minutes to look at two of those questions and answers. 
Question 141 asks, What are the duties required in the Eighth Commandment? And the answer reads, The duties required in the Eighth Commandment are Truth, Faithfulness, and Justice in Contracts and Commerce between Man and Man, Rendering to Everyone His Due, Restitution of Goods Unlawfully Detained from the Right Owners Thereof, Giving and Lending Freely According to Our Abilities, and the necessities of others, moderation of our judgments, wills, and affections concerning worldly goods, a provident care and study to get, keep, use, and dispose these things which are necessary and convenient for the sustentation of our nature and suitable to our condition, a lawful calling and diligence in it, frugality, Avoiding unnecessary lawsuits and suretyship, or other like engagements, and an endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the welfare and outward estate of others, as well as our own. Several of the many scripture references for that answer are Proverbs 6, 1-6, 10-4, 11, 15, 27, 23 to 27, Romans 13, 7, and 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 9. Then on the flip side of question 141 is question 142. 141 asked about the duties required by the Eighth Commandment, but 142 asks, what are the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The answer reads, the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are theft, robbery, man-stealing, and receiving anything that is stolen, fraudulent dealing, false weights and measures, removing landmarks, injustice and unfaithfulness in contracts between man and man, or in matters of trust, oppression, extortion, usury, bribery, vexatious lawsuits, unjust enclosures and depopulations, engrossing commodities to enhance the price, unlawful callings, and all other unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him, or of enriching ourselves, covetousness, inordinate prizing and affecting worldly goods, distrustful and distracting cares and studies in getting, keeping, and using them, Envying at the prosperity of others, as likewise, idleness, prodigality, prodigality, wasteful gaming, and all other ways whereby we do unduly prejudice our own outward estate, and defrauding ourselves of the due use and comfort of that estate which God hath given us. Several of the scripture references with this one and it actually has even more than the previous one did, are Job 15.34, Psalms 5.5 5 and 62.10, Proverbs 11.1, 1, 11.26, 20.10, 23.10, and Ephesians 4.28. So as you can see from those two questions and answers from the larger catechism, the Eighth Commandment has a lot to say about personal property. Well, 
actually it doesn't directly state that personal property is a thing it just assumes it which is more important than if it had directly stated it the reason for that is that when something is so accepted that it is just assumed without being defended that means that it must not have been a debated point or it would have been defended while that is mainly a point for interpreting church history I think there is some relevance to it as we interpret scripture as well. If God, in his inspired word, just says something is true with the assumption that everyone understands it without giving a defense of it, like Paul's full defenses of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then perhaps we should be hesitant in trying to reject that idea and make sure we really are understanding scripture correctly. Now, before you think I just went off track there and was talking about something that isn't related to the topic at hand, stop for a second. That was very related, and here's why. A prohibition on stealing assumes the existence of private property. If the Bible says, thou shalt not steal, that means that you must have private property that can be stolen, or someone else has private property that you are by God's law not allowed to steal from them. I cannot steal from you that which you do not own. I am not stealing from anyone when I breathe air because no one owns the air except for some specific circumstances. But if you own a shop, the wares of that shop are your property, and I must give you something in exchange for the goods I desire, whether money, services, or goods of my own. So prohibitions on theft assume the existence of private property. You cannot steal that which does not belong to someone else. And then just a couple chapters later, in Exodus 22 verses 1 through 15, we see all kinds of laws of restitution for theft or damage of property. And believe me, there will be at least one, if not more, episodes in the future about biblical restitution rather than systems currently employed in the United States. The next example I want to give, or should I say examples, come from Proverbs. I am going to read various verses from Proverbs that teach about private property. First, let's look at Proverbs 27, verses 23 through 27. This time I will be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible from which I plan to read almost exclusively once the entire thing is out. And right now I will be reading from as much as possible and then supplementing it with the New American Standard 95 until the legacy is completely out. So Proverbs 27, 23 through 27 in the LSB read, Know well the condition of your flocks and pay attention to your herds. For wealth is not forever, neither is a crown from generation to generation. When the grass disappears and the vegetation appears and the herbs of the mountain are gathered in, the lambs will be for your clothing and the goats will bring the price of a field. And there will be enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household and sustenance for your maidens. This passage talks about your flocks, 
and your herds. They are yours, and they are wealth. But take heed and do not be foolish, because wealth is not forever. But if wealth is not forever, that means it still exists. Just physical wealth now is not eternal. So store up your treasures in eternity where moth and rust do not destroy. Matthew 6, 19-21 But that does not mean that private property does not exist now or that we should not strive to acquire it. Without private property, you cannot take care of your family, which means you have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5, 8 And without private property, you do not have to give to him who is in need. Ephesians 4.28 This proverb also talks about your clothing, a thing you possess, as in property, and the price of a field, which means that field has a price which someone else would have to pay to acquire it from you, trading some of his property for some of your property. Next, let's look at Proverbs 21, verse 20. It reads, There is desirable treasure and oil in the abode of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. This verse tells us that the wise man has possessions, he has treasures, and that they are desirable. However, the fool swallows it up. The fool frivolously and foolishly uses up his possessions so that he no longer has, or never did have, the treasures that take time, skill, and diligence to acquire. Then the third passage from Proverbs we're going to be looking at is chapter 10, verse 4. That verse reads, Poor is he who works with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. The lazy man, the slothful man, the man with a slack hand is poor. He has little to no possessions. This is a bad thing, a negative example. The diligent has a diligent hand, a skillful hand, a hardworking hand, and is rich. He has many possessions. This is a good thing, a positive example. This proverb clearly teaches that riches from God-honoring work are good things, whereas some people claim that scripture would condemn any riches, not just those acquired through things that violate God's law. And this too will be the topic of an episode in the future. Then the last verse from Proverbs I'm going to cover in this episode is actually the verse that I reference at the beginning of every episode, Proverbs 13.22. It reads, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. If you do not have personal possessions, personal property to do with what you will, what exactly will you be leaving to your children and their children when you die? And even if you try to make that be only knowledge and wisdom and not physical possessions, How do you explain the second half of the verse about the wealth of sinners being stored up for the righteous? 
Does that exclusively refer to the knowledge and wisdom of sinners being stored up for the righteous? I don't think so. And then the final example I will provide in this podcast episode, though it is far from the final example I could give were I to make this episode longer, it comes from the New Testament. And I am not just doing that to virtue signal that I am not an Old Testament only guy or a Judaizer or anything else I may get accused of for doing a podcast on theonomy. Also, I think that of the passages I am giving in this episode, this is probably the second strongest argument after the first one from the Eighth Commandment. So let's look at Acts chapter 5, verse 4. Acts 5, 4 in the LSB reads, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your authority? Why is it that you laid this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So the context of that is with Ananias and Sapphira, that they sold their field, they gave some of the money from selling it to the apostles, and claimed that they gave all of it to the apostles, but they did not. They lied. They kept some of it back. And that they were struck dead for lying to God. So that's the context for that verse there. And people who push the idea that scripture supports socialism love to go to these early chapters of Acts. And don't worry, there will be episodes in the future refuting those erroneous claims. Quite a few of them if I get my way, and it's my podcast, so I will probably get my way on that. But for now, I want to just look at this one verse in the context of those ideas. People make the claim that we see communal living and socialistic ideas in the early chapters of Acts. People having all things in common, selling their goods and giving to the poor, etc. The claim is that this supports socialism today. And there are plenty of errors with that idea, such as the very statement I just said, selling their goods. So that brings us to the current verse. Ananias and Sapphira saw all the attention and praise that people such as Barnabas were getting. For that, see the last two verses of the previous chapter, chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. So therefore, the two decided together to sell their field, give some of it to the apostles to help the poor, keep the rest of the money for themselves, and claim they gave it all out of their generosity. Their sin was not in holding part of the money back, as some claim, but their sin was in lying, and saying that they gave it all when they only gave a little bit of it. They lied to God, as Peter says in verse 5. They lied to the Holy Spirit, which is why Acts 5-4 is a great passage for defending the Trinity and showing how the Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity. And while they owned the field, the field was theirs. After they sold the field, the money was under their authority to do with as they saw fit. And that's not just me making these claims, writing those claims over the Bible. That's quite literally what Peter says in verse 5. Peter says, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your authority? And then at the end of the verse, he says, You have not lied to men, but to God. So the field was their 
property. The field was theirs. It was under their authority. They owned it. This passage does not teach socialism, as some may try to twist it to say, but it actually is an amazing passage to teach us about private ownership, about possessions, about personal property. So those are just a handful of passages from Exodus, several from Proverbs, and one from Acts that we can look at and see that the Bible most assuredly teaches us about private property. And uh, uh, so with that, I want to close by saying something I should have said last week. I want to give a shout out to the band My Soul Among Lions. They are letting me use one of their songs for my intro and outro for this podcast. I love using a song on Psalm 19 for my intro and outro because that psalm talks about the law of God as it talks about both general and special revelation. So you should go check out My Soul Among Lions on Spotify, Tidal, YouTube, or wherever else you listen to music. So that was the first full episode of Theonomony. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace. Satisfies me Your law is sweet